My Year of Bad Sex, written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. Part 9. Harry needn't detain us long. Not because he wasn't a lovely guy, he was. Oh, we laughed a lot and the cuddling and snuggling and kissing were great, really off the scale of loveliness. But there was one thing about Harry that would make it yet another disastrous coupling. I'll come to that. I got home from my three-hour journey, broken for a shower with a future US president look-alike, and read my messages from Harry. He'd be finishing work at 10.30pm, so could he come for a massage after that? Sure. I grabbed some pasta with salad, set up the table, put towels to warm, and had another shower. Then the flurry of texts began. Harry was late. Harry was leaving. Harry would hurry. Harry was at Euston. Harry wasn't at Euston. He was confused. He was lost. He was sorry. He was changing trains. He was asking someone for directions. He was really very, very sorry. He was very, very late. Ah! I was really pissed off with him. It was after midnight when he arrived at my door. Which number? Which bell? I'd told him these things already several times, but as soon as he was inside the flat, I forgave him his scattiness. Because he was funny. He had a sense of humour that chimed with mine. We laughed easily and chatted animatedly. He was also twenty-one, the same as Noah, and a trainee architect. He'd been living in Scotland, hence his lack of familiarity with the London Tube Network. Not his fault. I've been a West End Wendy for so long that I forget there are zones other than one, and that in the North doesn't mean beyond St Albans. There are plenty of people who haven't ever come to the capital, have no desire to, and would rather stick pins in Judy Dench's eyes than be based in town. My own sister for one. How can you bear it, she asks, incredulous, every time she's forced by circumstances to take the train to Paddington. How can you not, stays in my head, unspoken. Harry's sister rang him as we were laughing about something on the sofa, our knees touching. I wanted to lean forward and unbutton his shirt as he liaised between her and her Uber driver about some detail of her journey. He rolled his eyes to show me his frustration with her, and then, after final reassurances and explanations, he was mine again. We talked about architecture, and I cited a particular building as the worst example of contemporary design I knew. He said it was the work of his favourite company. Oops. Was he deeply offended, or only mock-offended? I didn't know him well enough to be sure. The laughter continued. Genuine humour or nerves? Again, it could be either. When I suggested we move to the promised massage, he found everything funny. The table, the oil, the fact that I'd warmed the towels. He undressed, got on the table, and I began. It was Harry's first ever massage. Just like Noah. All those hours ago. That afternoon. Unlike immobile Noah, Harry was animated, turning his head from side to side to watch me and throwing me comments. He chatted away and asked about my favourite type, make, brand, breed of dog, and seemed genuinely shocked that I had no canine preferences. In fact, wasn't fussed one way or another about any of them, pug or pooch. Was he shocked or mock-shocked? As it was so late by now, I didn't complete the full routine, skipping some strokes on the arms, chest, and finishing with the scalp. We were both keen to progress beyond the therapeutic into the downright sexy. So I removed the small towel over his groin to reveal a fine penis and... <gasps> the most enormous balls I had ever seen. I was fascinated. 
It looked from the hefty scrotum as if it contained three testicles or even four. I had to check, pressing and testing with my fingers to be sure it was a brace, the usual total. When I commented on them and praised them as if the size of his bollocks was some kind of personal achievement equivalent to an academic qualification or promotion at work, he tutted about them and said he hated his endowment, explaining that his massive sack prevented his penis from hanging vertically, giving the impression of having a bulging erection when he didn't. He'd even been to see a specialist to investigate whether they could be surgically reduced to a more standard size. The answer had been no. So he and his giant nuts would live uncomfortably ever after. I vaguely recalled having been told that doctors in one part of the world, was it India, on becoming the father to a baby son, were in the habit of rubbing testosterone cream on the still as yet empty scrotal pouch to ensure their little boy would grow up to be a big, healthy young man. Urban myth, surely. Or maybe not. I hadn't asked Harry what his father's profession was. Now didn't seem to be the right time. Great balls, what does your dad do? I rimmed him, and he rimmed me. Coincidence? That the day I had finally spoken about what happened to me on that summer afternoon in the 1970s, I allowed someone to do that, to go there? No, probably not. I must have been signalling some permission, some readiness, some desire. I was expecting Harry to balk and gag and blurt out, horrified, Oh, you freak, you have a hideous skin tag on your arsehole, two of them. Which I do. A legacy of the incident, the non-consensual anal sex. The rape. The rape. But he didn't, thank God. I asked him if he liked to be fucked. I tried it once, but it hurt. I don't get fucked either, I said, giving no further details. We both came over his belly, his deep, chocolatey tone providing a suitably contrasting canvas for our juicy Jackson bollock splashes. Did I mention that Harry was Indian? Harry was an abbreviation of Harish. And no, I never did ask if his father was a doctor. After a discussion of work plans and the intricacies of the tube network, Harry took up my offer to stay the night. I gave him a new toothbrush. It was the one I'd bought for myself when I went to Clapham to meet Angelo. We snuggled down, and boy did he snuggle. He burrowed his head into my neck like a furry creature in a nest seeking protection, which I was happy to provide. I felt strong, secure, protective, caring, like a good daddy. And I felt valued through the ways Harry had shown his affection. Just before we slipped into sleep, me big spooning him, Harry whispered over his shoulder, I'm going to ask you a question now, Jonty, and the correct answer is dog. Okay. Uh-huh. What's your favourite animal? I chuckled. Um, dog. He squirmed into me, satisfied. We slept. Well, he slept. I didn't because of his snoring. Now, this was not just any snoring. This was M&S snoring, mighty and sonorous. Not your average snuffly breathing. It was shockingly raucous and resounding, intense and strident. It was so loud that I wondered how many of my neighbours would also be disturbed and prevented from slumber as I was. Next door, certainly, 
Upstairs and downstairs too, but through how many concrete floors would the thundering, juddering clamour permeate? Would any nocturnal passers-by on the street pause and gaze up in horror at the booming, window-rattling cacophony on the third floor? I imagined an urban fox wanting a quiet scavenge through rubbish bags, startled at the sound of, surely, a bear in the neighbourhood, or just putting its furry paws over its ears and making a mental note to email the council noise patrol department. It was also slightly amusing. So extreme were the decibels and so idiosyncratic the discordant bellow. If I tried to describe the actual sound, I'd say it was a sort of stifled squeal, like a man being stabbed and strangled simultaneously, expressing the shock and pain followed by the desperate but futile gasping for air to survive. All that psychodrama within an out-and-in breath, followed a few seconds later by the same histrionic tragicomedy, and then again, and again, on permanent loop like a repeating gif, more harsh and vehement with each repetition, until the intensity reached a thundering climax of violence, startling even Harry into a semi-awake state. He gave a gentler groan, as if to acknowledge and apologise for his behaviour, at which point I tried to settle finally into sleep. But within minutes the cycle began again, the ominous rumble of distant thunder indicating not just an inconvenient storm but something far more threatening, a volcano bubbling to eruption, the subterranean grumble of an earthquake perhaps, or tectonic plates colliding, shattering the world's continents. Forgive my hyperbole, but this was truly off the scale of any noisy nocturnal nonsense I'd ever witnessed. I reached for my phone and recorded not just the sound but the sight of me pulling a silly face in response to the rambunctiousness. I sent it to him so he'd have undeniable evidence when I mentioned later my disturbed night. It can't have been that bad. Would carry no weight. Now what? I was exhausted. I needed to sleep. I touched his face, held his jaw closed to encourage him to breathe through his nose. He half woke, pushed my hand away, and slumped back into oblivion, soon recreating those boisterous notes to disturb the silence and make the walls shudder anew. I pushed his shoulder to try to turn him onto his side. He went there obediently, for a minute or so, and then flopped onto his back again, the prime position for unleashing his discordant power. Harry was a nice guy, a good guy, but a bloody nightmare to share a bed with. A great kisser and snuggler, but a bloody nightmare to share a bed with. A kind and intelligent man, but a bloody nightmare to share a... Oh! I tried to wake him, but I'm a nice guy, a good guy. I didn't try that hard. I sort of didn't want to wake him. I didn't shout at him, tell him to get out, sleep on the sofa, get a cab and go home. I lay there, wondering what I could do. Finally, I slid from under the duvet, pulled a spare one from the wardrobe, and went to settle down on the sofa myself, taking care to close the two doors in between us. Now I was warm enough, comfortable enough, and quiet enough. I slept. At about 7am, Harry came stumbling into the sitting room, bleary-eyed and shamefaced. Was I... was I snoring? I nodded. A bit. Sorry. Come back to bed. He led me by the hand into my own bedroom. We burrowed down again. He was as warm and soft and cuddly as any man could be. It was wonderful. For at least four minutes. Then he drifted into sleep. And the apocalyptic vibrations began again, and continued for an hour until his alarm went. <sighs> he sighed as he stretched. I slept really well. So that was Monday.
Noah and Harry. Tomorrow is another gay. You could think of it as a version of Tinker Tailor Soldier Sailor. This week mine began Airman Architect Surgeon. Yes, Tuesday's assignation was a doctor in training at a hospital in North London. His name was Naveen, also Indian, you notice. Another coincidence, you say? I say yes, but of course that's not entirely true. And I don't want to lie to you. Look, since Harry and Naveen have come up on consecutive days, this might be the right time to address again this sensitive matter. Some of this stuff, such as the memories of what happened to me as a student, isn't easy to talk about. Then why are you telling us you persist? Don't give me a hard time. See my earlier comments about the Lloyd's building, heating ducts visible, genital warts and all, blah blah. Look, it's spilling out. If you don't want to listen, fine. Click off somewhere else. I really won't mind. The bit that's not easy to discuss right now is that, as I said, I do have a preference for a skin tone darker than my own. The contrast is appealing to me, OK? I mean that. Is it OK? I'm genuinely not sure. Saying, I like black guys, is fraught with the potential to cause offence to black, brown, Asian and minority ethnic men and women, and white men too. Oh, I might upset anybody while trying to offend no one. This is the challenge. To be honest, to be open to learning, but always aware I may well be triggering an explosion of affront as I pick my way through this minefield. In one not-so-happy, happy encounter, I was liked, woofed, tapped by a man, Sean, who was younger than me and black. I liked, woofed, tapped him back with some bland greeting and said, So, you're into older white guys. The length of time he took to reply might have indicated many things. He was at work, in the shower, speaking to several other men simultaneously, had changed his mind. I have no racial preference, he responded at last, and to some your language might seem a bit off. I felt reprimanded and bruised, but confused too. I didn't think I'd transgressed. I'm an older, white guy, fact. I fancy younger men, fact. I tend to fancy black guys. Fact. Is that a crime? A sin? An embarrassment? A faux pas? To do it? To say it? To feel it? I was trying to check my privilege and floundering. I texted him, Sean, I'm not the one who used the word racial. He wrote, But you implied I fancied you because of your colour. I said, You liked me and I'm white, so I thought, that was part of the attraction. I'm sorry if I'm wrong, or if I was insensitive. No need for apology, came his message. Just thought I should say. This isn't going anywhere, is it? I replied. I'll say goodbye, and wish you happy cruising. I added a kissing face, and ended the chat. I had tried to be the kind kind of person my mother would be proud of. That's nice, dear. Now will you have a slice of Bakewell tart? But despite my effort to be civil and decent... I did feel admonished and ashamed. I don't have a problem. He has the problem. He's oversensitive, got a chip on his shoulder, is too easily slighted, sees injustice where none is intended, etc., etc., etc. The criticism niggled in my mind overnight. It shuffled and squirmed around, pushing against my existing attitudes, forcing them to adapt in order to create space for itself, a cuckoo in a previously roomy nest. 
I discovered my own prejudices weren't so rigid that they couldn't adapt for an insistent newcomer. He was right. Of course he was right. Nobody had ever said to me, I fancy white guys, I'm attracted to you because of the colour of your skin. The next day I texted Sean. I get it. I think I really do. My language could certainly be seen as a bit off. I really appreciate the gentle way you explained it to me. Thank you. We didn't meet up for sex or even a coffee and a chat, but I'm very grateful to Sean for my brief online tutorial on unconscious racism. He didn't need to do that. He could have just swiped left or abused me, but he took the time and trouble to help me learn something valuable. On a few occasions since then, when it's felt appropriate and I've known someone well enough, I've asked one or two men, black men, if it's okay with them to say, I fancy black guys, and been told every time, sure, why not? So it's not all black and white. When is a preference a prejudice? When is my opinion unacceptable to another? And, crucially, what do we do about that? Answer, in my opinion, we do best when we listen openly and respond honestly. Yes, but... It's not always as straightforward as that. On one occasion, in the lying around stroking tummies phase after sex with a jolly guy who was fun and witty and a giggler, after I'd checked out the is it okay to say I fancy black guys position and got the thumbs up, he said, And what about slave talk? Do you like that? Ooh, this was a new one. My mind was racing for a suitable reply. Slave talk, you mean? Yeah using your white power, belittling me. I'm really into that. Oh, shit, no. I'm trying to be the good guy here, the nice guy, the decent, honourable, woke, non-racist guy. I don't even want to say I find you attractive if that fetishises or objectifies you, which I get. And now you say you'd be turned on by being an exotic object to me. Are you now fetishising the whiteness of me? Please don't give me these ethical conundrums when I just want to suck your dick. Your black dick. Your dick which happens to be black. Because you're black. And I'm not. Oh, God! Will you spank me? he asked. Well, yes, I said. Of course. If you've been a bad boy. That seemed to be the desired response. And spit in my mouth. Um, big gobs of it. Oh, and call me a filthy faggot when you fuck me. No! I was hoping to find mutually respectful sex, and he was probably looking for a good sex therapist. Which I am, coincidentally, but I wear one hat at a time, even when naked. A guy once sent me a video of himself being fucked. It happens. A lot. Get over it. I hadn't asked for it, but I imagined it must be the 21st century equivalent of a calling card or holiday snaps. Here I am, doing what I do best. Do you like the new curtains in the spare room? This one was shocking. Not for the fucking. That was pretty routine, as fucking often is. I mean, there are a limited number of positions, outfits, speeds of attack, dialogue possibilities and camera angles to play with. Something shot on an iPhone isn't going to win prizes at Cannes for cinematography, but can offer a hint of what's possible in the flesh. A trailer, or taster, if you like. What was so disturbing to me was that this man, Brian, who looked attractive and seemed intelligent from our limited online exchanges, was lying on a bed, being topped by a faceless man in a t-shirt who was grunting the usual take it boy phrases. All very okay so far, but my problem was that he had a massive, 
a huge and enormous swastika on his T-shirt. A what? A swastika? A fucking swastika? I went straight into prim disapproval mode. That man has a swastika on his shirt. Yeah. I find that shocking. Okay. Look, Brian, you do know what the Nazis did to gays. Right. They tortured them, sent them to concentration camps, used them as target practice, hundreds of thousands of them, of us. The length of his pause led me to hope he was thinking about what I'd said. Then, Sozman was having a shite. Lol, whatevs, lighten up, it's only a t-shirt. He was right. I lightened up. We met that evening for passionate sex. He moved in the next day and we're getting married in the spring. No, of course not. I ended the conversation with a waving hand emoji. I had no words to express my stupefaction. <sighs> so, Naveen. Yes, he was not white. We'd chatted a few times and he seemed shy and sweet. There had been no dirty talk and no swapping of dick pics. I'd offered the possibility of a massage, but he hadn't seemed enthusiastic, so here we were arranging to meet for a drink, like an old-fashioned date. I agreed to go to his part of the world, five tube stops, and he gave me a choice of two venues, London's oldest gay pub, or another closer to where he lived. I chose the latter for obvious reasons. Well, obvious to me, and I hoped to Naveen. He met me at the tube station and seemed exactly the person I'd expected from his photos and our chat, which is rarely the case. We had a drink and a nice, relaxed conversation. He seemed tentative, non-sexual. The chat revolved around our families, our jobs, our living arrangements, even touching on Brexit and his grudging respect for Theresa May's political determination, which alarmed me. Could you ever fuck a Tory is one of those phrases that is asked in jest, but beneath the veneer of comedy is a genuine inquiry. As for me, the answer would be, probably not. I guess I need a tutorial in political tolerance. At least Naveen's respect for May was grudging, so... Yeah, I'd fuck him. But is that what he wanted? There were plenty of laughs and a second drink, but was there a green light? Did we actually fancy each other? Almost. The pub was closing. We walked outside. What now? As nothing had been offered or suggested, I said into the silence, Well, um, which way is the tube? And he gave me directions. We hugged a farewell, and one of us probably him, said something about that massage, and one of us, probably me, said it was a shame the table was at home. Could it be done on a bed? Naveen asked. For some reason dismissing the fact of the floor massage with Noah a few days earlier, and jettisoning the fact that he'd brought the word bed into our dialogue, the most sexual reference all evening, I said prosaically, no, it needs a hard surface. We hugged again, and this time I gave him a gentle peck on the cheek. I walked to the tube. On my short journey home, I had a message from him. I would have invited you over, but not much to show, LOL. What could he mean? That he has a small cock? I sent a question mark. Well, the apartment and room, I mean. Ah, <laughs> I replied, if you had said come for a coffee, I'd have accepted, but I didn't want to assume too much. Just go with the flow, I guess, he said. 
grab what we want or desire, I suppose. Ah, LOL, yes, I could have offered coffee or more wine, but I didn't have much in stock. Another time, I guess. I guess. Or probably not. In fact, Naveen would resurface, and yes, I would get to see his room and whether he had a small cock, and discover if he would be added to my yearly harvest of bad sex. But don't hold your breath. Or even bother to freshen it. My Year of Bad Sex is written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. The music and studio production are by Andy Mills. My Year of Bad Sex is a Protocol production. <laughs>